DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability, Disability done, done different, different, candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid, Candid Conversations. conversations. Oh. <laughs> We're so in sync now. My name is Evie Norfell and I'm in the studio with my dad, Roland. Hi. And we are joined by a very, very special guest today, Mr. Kurt, Kurt Fernley. The man who needs no introduction, but just in case. <laughs> He's a three-time Paralympic gold medalist, a founding member of the Independent Advisory Council for the NDIS, and recent, more recently, a broadcaster. He was the host of ABC TV's One Plus One this year and also a podcaster, one of our fellow podcasters in arms. Kurt has his own podcast called uh, Kurt Fernley's Tiny Island. And more recently, uh, he's the host of A Nation Changed, a four-part podcast that explores the evolution of the NDIS, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Welcome, Kurt. Hey there, guys. And you've, you've got your own podcast, haven't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so for three years, well, since I finished racing, I, uh, I I picked up. I went straight out and bought a podcast and started just talking to people about what it is to be an Australian. So I'm uh, I'm about eighty episodes in, I think. So, Kurt, when you what it means to be an Australian, do you get beyond the cliches of mateship and looking after each other? Is there more depth to it than that? Look, there's both. Uh, so there, there are people who who don't think about uh, what it is to be an Australian beyond the, uh, you know, beyond the, 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 the ways that we've, um, you know, come to terms as it to be a cliche, like mateship and looking after each other. There are those people that that's a solemn belief that that is what it is to be an Australian. But a lot of people, uh, I spoke to Sheila Reed, who spoke about that she, she's an Indigenous solicitor and uh, grew up a couple of hours away from me and spoke about how she doesn't believe herself to be an Australian. And everything that we take for granted about what it is to be an Australian, it felt like there was always a, a contrast to how she would view it. And other people would speak about how uh, exactly that, that this cliche approach to what it is to be an Australian is echoed in another 150 countries around the world. But there, there are, then you, then you keep talking about what it is the industry they're in, how it's reflected when they travel, how the whether the music industry is seen differently when it leaves the shores, or uh, how we deal with uh, whether differences in uh, how we accept new immigrants. You know, like it, you do get some varied responses, right from the cliche to the Australian doesn't represent what it used to be. An Australian doesn't represent in how I experience my life at all. Um, so, yes. COVID's reshaped a lot of our opinions of ourselves, hasn't it, Kurt? If you've been looking at it for three years, COVID really um, makes a difference, doesn't it? Mm. Do you want me to expand a bit on that? So well, I always a- thought, I grew up on American TV and I always thought I was as much American as I was Australian until COVID broke out and it's like, holy shit, I'm not American. I'm not, I'm, I'm very different to those people. Well, I would say I've never, so everyone that I've had on, eventually do find a degree of uniqueness um, in in some way. Um, but I spent every three months a year since I was 13 years old in the US and there is no place more different in the world, although there are some of those superficial kind of 
um, superficial differences, uh, or not similarities. There is just it's a it's a chasm between how we experience life and how the US experience life. It's yeah, it's but there are some there there are some people that have responded differently because of how we went into lockdown and they would have sat there and sworn to you that the egalitarian nature of Australia was the thing that they that they really believed that we would look after each other. But looking at the empty shelves of toilet paper, watching, you know, uh, you know, watching whether it be a, a protest or uh, how people treat each other in that kind of scenario, that's the thing that I think through the way that we see each other, that, that, um, uh, hostility, um, because up until then, there is a lot of we look after each other, we treat each other well. We, you know, but, but yeah, that's how I think it's probably changed. Is we've had a couple of people mention about, I just didn't think we were that. That's interesting. Kurt, part of what we want to talk to you about is the Nation Change podcast that you've just completed and is out there on the airwaves. One of the key questions you're addressing in that is, is the NDIS living up to its principles? And can I ask you, when I've seen your interviews about the NDIS, you, you say it was, it was never going to solve all our problems. It was, it's a scheme. It's got certain things it's going to offer, but it's not going to solve all our problems. But given you're talking about a na- nation changed, is it changed enough with what the NDIS has done? Yeah, I feel I feel like that's almost like a conversation about how how long is a piece of string. I, I do think it has changed the way that people with disabilities are able to many four hundred thousand people with disabilities. And from last time I checked, it was in the eighty plus percentage of uh, of, of people who participated in the um, in the scheme had uh, a better experience of their services of of uh, how they engage. Uh, than what they did previously, which is uh, amazing. So if it's even 80%, then that is uh, 320,000 Australians whose life is better, who feel like they are able to engage further into the community. So if you trying to say that, is that enough? Uh, I would love that every single person who engages with the scheme has an amazing experience, who, who feel like they're, the people who assess them uh, understand what who they are, what their ulterior alternate uh, ways of engaging with the world is, and give them a fair uh, a, a fair hearing and a uh, a positive change to their life. I wish that was all four hundred thousand, and uh, I wish there were more more people who were able to actually enter into the scheme. But you, you do look back and you think over half a dozen years, three hundred and forty thousand people. 400,000 people have entered the scheme. A big chunk of that whose lives are now better, whose families are now uh, able to engage with the country better. I can't, I, I can't say anything other than we have, we have changed, we have changed Australia. One of one of our, um, we're big fans of the scheme in a lot of ways too, Kurt. But one of our biggest disappointments with it is. We hope the insurance approach would lead to a greater emphasis on inclusion, that ultimately it's better for everybody, including the society, if we include people in mainstream services. And to date, the NDIS is still very much a service-based system where 
people are there's not enough work being put into creating this inclusive society i know you're huge on having a more inclusive society do you have any comments around that aspect of it i think that if we fund this ndis to its you know absolute potential if the Australian community don't come on board, if we don't get communities employing people with disabilities, if we don't get your local community clubs, whether that be sporting or the arts, to actually engage with the individuals who are participating in the NDIS, then we've funded it for nothing. With our community to come along, we've put $22 billion into a pot of money. We've put $22 billion who get to, whose people with disabilities get to find themselves who get to potentially go further out than what they once were but we need welcoming arms to actually really fulfill what the NDIS is about so a hundred percent we need to we need to now continue to build community to allow everybody and that's me as the father of non-disabled kids I need to be looking at the sporting clubs that my kids go to and make sure that every kid gets to experience it. We need to be, each and every one of us should be looking around at the workplace that we are in right now and look around and say, is there disability represented in it? And if not, why? And when we get more employers, when we get more spaces that are asking that question, then that's, that's well, that's just the next battle. That's, that's where we've got to head. We wanted to explore the concept of community with you in a few different ways. And one of the things that strikes me about you, Curtin, I revisited a lot of your interviews and doing the research for you, is that you belong to a, a host of communities. One of the communities is the Fernleys. You're, you're a bloody big family with some notable um, people in it. You come from a, a small rural community and you describe the disability sector as my community. And I wanted to ask you, it, it seems like a, a tough question, and Evie wasn't sure I should ask you, but why do you call the disability my community, the disability sector my community? I would say that my family brought me up in Karkor. My, my family was an extended family of half of the citizens in Karkor. They give me a base where I was able to feel like I was valued by each and every person in that town. They, they raised $10,000 for me when I was 13 years old, and they gave me the opportunity to race wheelchairs. We weren't financial enough to head that way. And and they told my parents when they objected to that to stay out of it and said it's between us and the boy. Um, so uh, that entire community changed my world and gave me an access into what I now refer to as my family as this great big giant connection of people with disabilities around this country. It, it was first represented through the through the Paralympic family where, where people with disabilities would develop me, would, would would kind of add to my experience within the sport. They would develop an athlete who was then able to go around the world and, and, and find the life that I get to live in now. And the reason why they are my family is because I had the privilege of representing my community, the Australian community on that stage, but nobody loves Paralympic sport more than more than kids with disabilities and their families. They, they would come out and they would be at every single place that we would go to, whether it was, you know, you'd go to an event uh, domestically and compete. There would be kids with disabilities coming out and engaging with that sport. And and you just feel that there is, it's not a, it's not a distant kind of relationship. It's not, you are not an athlete and they're a fan 
the amount of support that you receive from that family right there is nothing short of the love that you receive from the people within your community. They they engage and they follow and they you know, try and you know give the same opportunity to their kid that they are introducing to you that Carcall gave to me. And uh, I don't know when I've received support throughout my entire life, and I just feel that support when you're in the community of people with disabilities is is nothing short of anything else that I've experienced. It's just awesome. I, I've got to admit, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan, Kurt, of um, the way you speak and the things you talk about. And I, I wanted to ask you about one thing you've said, which is um, the pity that some people give you and the stigma that still exists in Australian society around disability. And you've just described being like a, a, a significant hero to a lot of people. And let's take that as read. It's true. You are a significant hero to a lot of people. Yet you can also be a subject of pity. And even I were talking about cognitive dissonance before Christmas, trying to come up with a definition of it. I reckon that must be pretty close, mustn't it? <laughs> Probably, yeah. There, there, there are within meters of each other. There are very different experiences. There are just light years apart. So, yeah. Um, and it's not just me that experiences that. It's you know, it's my kids as well. They experience this two different worlds where, where where dad will be praised in you know while we're walking down the street and then dad will be either treated like um, you know an object of pity of a person or you know when it comes to things like airlines or it comes to trying to catch a cab or turns up at a, a, a building that's inaccessible then then I'm left there and so they get to experience they get to experience it with me, and and uh, I don't know. There is there is something both uh, motivating that you know. Obviously, we've just got to keep got to keep walking and got to keep talking about this stuff. Um, and then also pretty humbling. I wonder if it stops you from getting arrogant, Kurt. I wonder if just as you're talking, I wonder if it's one of those keys to why you're so fucking likable, is because. <laughs> Um, you, you keep getting, you know, shot down. You don't get the opportunity to build that elite sportsman arrogance without being shot down every now and then. Oh dear! You know what I could do with, you know, I don't know. You, you, if you think that maybe there is something good about it, but it's tiring. Wrong. It, it's. I got mm. It's tiring. You know, like it'd be great. It'd yeah, be great yeah, to be yeah. able to. Uh, it'd be great to be able to not have to. Have, and it's not frequent. Like it, it's not every day that you go down there that this something happens that shocks you out of the life that you're in. It's it's not. But when it does, it's it's just um, I don't know. It, 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 be, it, it's great to think that there might be good come from it because other than that, it's just plain old bloody exhausting. Yeah, fair enough. Kurt, the fear of failure is what drives a lot of successful people. What gets you out of bed? Not the fear of failure. Uh, I I try not to even even contemplate that as a a real thing. Um, I I would kind of rally against any sort of fear. You know what I mean? Like there are are times where I, I, I didn't like heights. So I've got to try and buck down an airline that would 
or a, a skydiving company that would that would allow me to jump out of a plane. You know, like I'm I'm still a bit afraid of heights. I'm not I'm not a big uh, fan of it at all. But this the idea of being motivated by fear. It's I I want to make sure that I am able to be a part of. I, I, I think it's more this idea that I'm able to be a part of something bigger and that I'm able to contribute in whatever way it is, whatever is in front of me right now. I'm able to participate in some form of adventure and, and you know, I, I've always known that there's been a greater purpose, that there is this idea that you're creating change, that if you're able to do these things, that, 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 that the, the guys that led the path before you, they created the change so I could be me, I get to lay down a new path so the next person can be bigger and better and experience amazing things past that. But the fear of failure is that's, that's something that I would kind of push to the side because I don't know, running, entertaining this idea. I just, I don't see how good comes from it. Yeah, that's totally consistent with, I think, a lot of things you've done in your life, including crawling the Kokoda Trail. And one of the things you said, Evie, about you can't really call what you do a crawl, Kurt. What were you going to say? It was like, almost like doing push-ups <laughs> all the way along the Kokoda Trail. Uh, you know, I would recommend <laughs> anyone doing the Kokoda Trail, anyone in the, in the in this country that gives you this perspective and idea about what it is to be an Australian, or at least it challenges what your previous ideas were that, there was a, a real cost that was paid, and um, but I wouldn't recommend anyone crawling it. That was just brutal. <laughs> um, and, and you know what? I, I was probably in the middle of that. I was probably motivated by a bit of fear. I do remember that there were some nights six months before I would trek it. I would um, wake up in the middle of the night terrified that this is going to be 96 kilometres and you're in the middle of this dense jungle in a place that you've mm -hmm. never been before. And... So then you do wake up and it's like, okay, well, that's on my mind. How do I rectify it? How do I get rid of that? And how do I I try and make sure that I can sleep better tomorrow? And that's you just had to work more and you just had to crawl more and you're looking for greater efficiencies about how you crawl. But that was uh, that was probably the riskiest thing that I've ever did, but also just incredible an experience, just an amazing adventure that I uh, I got to share with the people that mean the most to me in the world and lots of, um, lots of my family. Yeah, in watching some of the video footage of the crawl, I loved hearing your reflections about, I mean, I don't know that I heard you use the word I at all in the video. It was constantly about we and about the, the people who were there with you. And you talked a little bit about needing to uh, ask for help and to put the ego aside. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can we contrast that too, Kurt, with other times you talk about eating pain? And you've eaten a lot of pain in your life as a way to success in, in competitive sports. So you know how to eat pain, but your question, Evie? Well, you also clearly know how to ask for help and to do things with people. Yeah, I've, I've been asked this a couple of times, how do they work in with each other? And the only way that I can do one is with the other. Um, knowing that I've always had this, uh, this, this group around me where it was kind of, just bombarded in me that one life is going to be uncomfortable, but you're strong enough to get through it. But there will always be people around you that you are able to rely on, and 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 vice versa. That that I play a role with that group as well. So uh, there are there have been some of the most painful days in the past that, whether they be sport or 
or just the monotony of trying to, you know, be at the top of the game for a couple of decades. But I've never, although I've eaten the pain alone, I've never got there on my own and I've never felt like I'm on my own. I've always, I've always, and this is one of the, one of the strange things as well is that not only do I feel that I often feel guilt about the, the way that I got to experience my disability was so, I don't know whether it's unique, but it was just perfect for the way that I would engage with it. But my disability was there. It was obvious. And I was a focal point that my community saw it. They didn't ostracize. They did the exact opposite of that. They made sure that I was given everything, every skill required to engage with my community. And that includes feeling no hesitation, feeling no shame in looking up and asking for help for the people around. And so they, both of those have lived with each other and have, have added to the other one. In training day, there was no hesitation of being open and honest with my coach and the people around me that I was training with. I couldn't have made those games if I didn't have that skill. I, I don't, I don't have the skills to build strength 100% on my own. I just, I don't. There is no way that if I was in a vacuum, I would experience the life that I have. Um, so, yeah, although it might seem like almost a contradiction to others, I, I don't see how they live on their own. With when you talk about Kokoda, there was a hanging question or a hanging um, statement that you made that I'm really keen to follow up. You said that your day would end, I think you said at three o'clock, three thirty in the afternoon, and um, the people you were walking with would um, strip you down and wash you, and then the rest of that day was the hardest part of the crawl for you. Did I get that right? And uh-huh. wow. mate, it was. Like, so you've just went through eight or nine hours of being in discomfort and but you've had this immediate requirement in front of you you've got to take another step you've got to take another step you've got to take another step you've got to go down a hill you've got to cross a river you know like there's there's the immediate uh, need to answer this question or this problem that's in front of you but the moment that that stopped meant that you had to sit there and control every other thought that was every other thought, every other doubt, you know, that was in the back of your head, you know, you're two days in, two days in and you're feeling broken, you know, like, and you realise that you've got eight, nine more days in front of you where you're looking into and have experienced the jungle, the likes of which you'd never seen before in your life. Uh, so you're lying in bed at three o'clock in night. You've, you've just had everything rebandaged. There's, you know, they would go through every single cut and braise and use like a decal on it. And they would then recover it to make sure that there were, you know, that it was safe to crawl again the next day. So you're lying in there feeling every bit of the pain that you'd earned that day and then doubting and wondering and trying to get your head around where that one day fit in the entire journey. So those moments there, you just lay there and you kind of say on repeat that if, if I sleep, my body will heal. If it heals, I'll feel a little bit better and I only need to feel a little bit better to try again tomorrow. 
and, and it was funny. Mac would come up to me, who, who was my porter. He was a local guy. And he was my porter from day two. He was also the guy that would strip me off at the end and make my tent. And every day he would sit next to me at night about sunset. And he'd just whisper and he'd say, if you want to, if you want out of here, if you want out of here, just tell me and I'll have you in Mornsby by morning. If you want out of here, I'll put you on my shoulders and you'll be in bed. You'll be in bed by tomorrow. And it was, yeah, mate, it was just where you had to manage all of the personal expectations for years, um, the reality of the discomfort that you're going through. You had to manage everything because there was nothing that needed to be answered that was immediately in front of you. This could be a strange question. We may well cut it out afterwards, Kurt, but <clears throat> I've just listened to a podcast with a, a guy that's a paraplegic that teaches yoga. I don't know if you've heard it, but he talks about um, addressing pain in a different way and the spaces between pain and understanding um, rather than resisting pain, going with pain. My question, and it sounds weird, is do you miss the pain no. of pushing yourself so hard? <laughs> no. No, <laughs> well, like I can get the. I, I, for me, the when you're in the middle of that, it was always for a purpose, right? So you were always trying to get yep. to the other side or uh, develop the strength. The only way you develop strength is dealing with discomfort. So that means putting your body in a place where it's uncomfortable and you're feeling pain and learning to manage it. Um, some people do talk about finding a bit of joy in it. I would find the joy in the overall picture and just know that I had to manage that pain and discomfort to get to that moment. But uh, I will I will never put myself in that situation of Kokoda again. I I do enjoy testing my body. I do enjoy, you know, jumping onto the hand cycle and knocking out a hundred kilometers and feeling that, you know, that, that discomfort. I love I love crawling with my kids for a bushwalk where we get to, you know, have that little adventure that is um, that is uncomfortable but it is you know, it gives you those really, really beautiful experiences with, you know, with your your, your people, with your community. So, um, but no, I don't miss that. I don't miss, I don't miss the training. I, I, I miss my friends of sport, or, uh, but I do miss being amazing at that one particular thing where, you know, when you're when you're at the top of your game, you get in this your racing chair and you just feel like you are you are perfect. Where everything is everything is like it's a machine headed in that one direction, and uh, that feeling is pretty incredible. It's uh, it's it's the reason why people give such long periods of their life for really what is a fleeting moment moment of a, a Paralympics or an, an Olympic game. And you have had a stellar career. I mean, four Olympic Games, three, including three gold medals, four wins at the New York City Marathon. I won't, I won't tell you your whole career, but for our listeners, suffice to say, it's it's pretty stellar. And you've retired from um, wheelchair racing and marathons, you mentioned, uh, I think, in 2018. Where are you going to get your adrenaline now? Honestly, I would say that the perfect day for me is just finding something to do with my kids and and, you know, like, we've got a little place just outside of Newcastle. And if we're able to go there and just have an adventure for the day, that's, 
that's enough of a fix for me. That's the that's that uh, that, <laughs> that different stage of life and different stage of of uh, where you find that that enjoyment and where you find that need to uh, to to exist in. That's that kind of space. Kurt, we're starting 2021 and a lot of people are looking forward and thinking about some really big picture issues. You know, we've gone through a year of COVID and, and what's life going to be like? We've talked to a lot of people on Candid Conversations about the concept of trust, trust in relationships, trust in the people around us. And when you've spoken to us already and when I've seen you speak, you speak so much about collaboration. You speak about the people who worked with you on Kokoda about the other Paralympians that guided you. Has trust been an important concept in all of it? I feel when we were in the middle of COVID, when everything, uh, in the beginning of it, when it was, you know, you, you jump onto social media and it was, everything was falling apart, you know, and, and I felt like, I felt like my world was going to stand because, I do have trust in the communities that I live in. I do know all of my neighbours. I do touch base with them. I do communicate with them. Everyone that I work with, I've had relationships with them for for decades. I've been able to, I I've been able to exist in places, and I wouldn't exist in places where trust was an issue. But I know that huge parts of our population don't get that ability they don't have the luxury to only work in environments where they trust where the work is what the work is doing where they trust the people who are either there in their direct um who are in their direct uh employers say all the other direction uh and and the thought that they that's where my biggest fear was that you could tell there was a lot of people who don't have that luxury of trusting where and who they live with, of trusting where they get their employment from, of trusting, you know, that they are going to be safe. Um, and that's honestly, that's the, I did worry. I, and, and part of me does still worry that there will be a big part of our community that will lose faith and lose trust with everyone else. And when that happens, I think that we will have some, we will have some pretty big problems to deal with. Um, but you see in the lack of trust in science, the lack of trust in, in government, the lack of trust in, uh, in well, the lack of trust in something like the NDIS. Uh, I, I see one of the biggest risks of a successful NDIS is community lose trust mm. in it, that they lose the faith that it's actually doing what it's meant to be doing. And um, it, that's one of the reasons why I... I, I kind of got really excited about doing a nation change so that we could talk honestly about it, that we could have those conversations that are uncomfortable to have, that we could talk about where it came from, where it's at, but not just talk about the glowy bits, talk about the issues, the, the, the fact that it is exhausting for many people to engage with it on that first run. You know, there were, I feel that that idea of trust, although I recognise that I feel like that I'm incredibly fortunate that, that that hasn't wavered in my life, the, the trusting community. I do recognise that, that it's, that's a big risk for lots of parts of our community going forward. A moment ago, Kurt, you spoke about um, no longer being at the elite level and missing that. 
And I'm going to sound like a bit of a fanboy, but I think you are still at the elite level. You're absolutely an elite thinker in this space. You're an elite leader. You're um, a hero. Uh, that's, that's such a corny fucking word, and I don't use it, but um, I really don't use it. It's, <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's unusual for me to come across like this, Kurt, but um, you're someone who's really, really elite at this level. And I wanted to, that, that's a trap question because then you, if you agree with it, you sound like a dick. But what I wanted to ask, <laughs> what I wanted to ask you about is gratitude because you talk about gratitude and um, it's a big concept for us too. But what do you mean when you talk about gratitude? I don't see myself, I could never see myself in there. Um, so I would say that the reason why I speak about disability is that that it's a it's a fine line between gratitude and guilt that I spoke about earlier on. This just absolute gratitude that I recommend. Like I I realise that I get to live my life right now because people stood up and fought for me before I fought, was able to fight for myself. That is the only reason that I've ended up where I've ended up. That, that may be true, Kurt, but that how I have, do you remind yourself of it? That may well be true, but a lot of people stand on the shoulders of others but don't remember it. Um, you remember it. Yeah, mate. If you, if you grow up crawling around the hills and not knowing that there's anything outside of the grass that's in front of you, you know, you know I literally grew up in Karkor where my, my well was fingers in the dirt. You know, that was it. That was it. Um, I have experienced that a hundredfold over in countries around the world where I land in a place and that's another kid who's still there, you know? He, he, he or she are still living in the dirt. They're, they're, they're still riding on the back of their mum as a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old. So I, I, there is no way to escape that. The, the, the absolute idea, the, 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 the truth about who I am. Like, there's no way. Uh, I am here. I get to do what I do because people fought for me. And so I would say that experiencing that abroad, spending time in developing countries where the idea of being a person with a disability is extremely different to the way that I get to live right now. But knowing that that was my existence, you know, like that's, that was me. I, I, I was their kid. I, I, that was, you know, that that was and could have been my my reality. So I don't see how you live that way, how you see those things, and you do not connect them. Uh, you'd be neglecting your duties of being any sort of decent human if you didn't. Um, so yeah, I, I just I, I don't think that there's any sort of alternative to that. The, 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 the contrast and the it's the contrast of how I live right now and how I I grew up is, is that too much ground has been covered to not look at that and be thankful and then to experience the very real reality where two thirds of the world who require a wheelchair will never see one to land in those places and to experience it with them today, uh, there's, there's no alternative. Like there's, there's just, if you experience that and you don't learn and you don't 
find that moment of gratitude if you don't uh, I don't know if if I if I didn't take that on board I think I would have some much greater uh, issues uh, in me. So the third and final of my um, New Year's concepts that I wanted to talk to you about that I've heard you talk about a lot, Kurt, is resilience. And you've got a seven-year-old son and two or three-year-old daughter, if I got that right? You do, yeah. I do, yeah. And how yeah. are you going to promote resilience in those two? We always talk about how strong they are. We always talk about how how, how, uh, how much we value who they are. Um, we always try and mix. You know, like my wife, my wife uh, hates sport. She's not a big fan of it. <laughs> so she loved wheelchair racing. She loved wheelchair racing for a period of time. But uh, we do, you know, we do take our kids on adventures and have from the moment they've been able to walk. We do talk about every time they're falling over, about that little fall is going to make you be able to get up quicker next time. We talk about, you know, we talk about how, you know, the, those those moments when they do crash their bike or lose in sport, how they're the lessons that are going to make you the, the, the same conversations that I was having around disability that made me, um, we're having with our kids and have done since the first 60 seconds that they were in our arms. Um, I don't know whether it's going to work, work for me, um, but we're, but we're doing, we're, we're, we're kind of doing what we can in that area. I, I, uh, my young fella just the other day, he, I don't know what it was, but he came back and he's crying. He had a, uh, like a graze across his knee and he says, it's hurt and giving me a hug and a cuddle. And he says to me, but I know it's going to make me oh. <laughs> I might be, I might be creating a little, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, he's, you know, they, they, those things, those lessons, those conversations. They are, uh, they are definitely singing. What a sweetheart. Him. You know what? He is a sweetheart. He, yes, yes uh, this is, the, so this just happened over Christmas. I had a, a, a little kid come up to me repetitively and he was only a couple of years older than Harry and he would say that I got little legs, you got little legs, you got little legs, this little kid. And I'm like, okay, I tried to talk to him about what it is and it's just like, it turned into a you've got little legs and laugh and walk off. And I said, mate, you know that you're being a bit rude, aren't you, to this kid? And he's going, yep. And I said, it's pretty mean what you're saying. He goes, yep. <laughs> and Harry comes up to me after and he goes, Dad, what was that little, what was he saying? You know, was he being naughty? And I said, yes, mate, he was. Of course, he said that you had little legs, Harry asked me. And I said, yeah. Mate, it was more about what he said. And Harry says, have I ever said that to you? Mate, it wouldn't matter if you did because we would have talked it through. And then he goes, uh, what did I, uh, he, If you were the wish that I had little legs, he asked me. I said, No, you're perfect. And Harry goes, Dad, you're perfect as well. I wouldn't swap you for anything. This is yeah, yeah. a little kid who at, at six years old is processing his peers, mocking his dad. Yeah. And then have the awareness to think, have I done that? But uh, yeah, so it's it's funny around disability, the lessons that every single person are able to contemplate from, you know, the kid in the classroom with the kid with autism or Asperger's 
to the son of a guy in a wheelchair. There, there, there are there are lessons there that I just think are good for the future of community. And I felt pretty grateful that he had learnt this lesson of reflection and assessment. And he is a sweet, sweet little kid. I loved his appearance too in the podcast, A Nation Change, that you've got him. Uh, both kids at the beginning of one of the episodes talking to them about what they think of disability. And would they give their pocket money? Yeah, that was really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> we did have that conversation and we were trying to talk about how the NDIS funds people in community and it funds them to be able to, you know, go to uh, get into the, the the school feeling more able and able to interact more or is able to get them into the workforce. And the only thing he took away was the NDIS is going to help people to have jobs. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, that is about the level that most people seem to have when we talk about NDIS. Yeah, well, it's, it's easy. It's easy to remember. But, yeah, when I, he did say that, yes, he'd give his pocket money to our, allow uh, people with disabilities to allow to interact with schools and stuff. Later on, he did come up to me and ask, do I have to give all of my pocket money? <laughs> <laughs> Once the cameras stop rolling. Um, yeah, he's like, do you mean all of it? <laughs> um, Kurt, there's a question I want to ask you that I haven't been able to figure out how to word. So if you don't want to answer this, just just say so. Um, I, I really enjoyed the podcast. I listened to it with my partner who's just about to start a job with Higher Up, actually, totally coincidentally, in a few weeks. And she's coming from outside the sector. So uh, it was really fun for the two of us to be able to listen together and for her to have that introduction to the sector. So thanks for that. Um, one of the things I noticed that I keep thinking about since listening to the podcast, it's very well produced, by the way, and it's obviously done by podcast professionals because it's got this real story arc to it. You know, it sets up the story and then it's got the big challenge and the victory at the end. And there's kind of some people who are cast as the heroes and the antagonists as well. Cast is a bit strong, but it's really got that kind of um, color to it, which was really enjoyable to listen to. Uh, But one of the things that struck me in listening to it is that when I say there were some people who kind of reoccurred in the podcast as more antagonistic characters, some of them were the most senior leaders of the NDIS today. And I don't really know what my question is. Maybe, maybe I'll soften it a little bit and just say that's my that's my interpretation of the podcast, and that's something that um, stuck with me from listening to it. It It's a very roundabout way to say that um, one or two (laughs) of the people really pissed you off with their answers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's what oh, I Did I piss you off too, yeah. There you go. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> there were I, I, there were some uncomfortable conversations in there. Um, but like I said, the podcast was meant to be challenging, and and I, I do have to I do have to thank Higher Up for for investing in this and telling a story that I think isn't told enough and giving us this honest with this, this ability to be honest in there and take risks in there and and I, I don't when I finish the, the the podcast I don't think there are villains you know what I mean like mm. there's not villains in there um, and there are there are, there are kind of robust conversations that I think I think are in like I think that we we, we get people to uh voice that response to that as well 
Um, so I know a few of the comments, I'm sure that I can, I can imagine that uh, people with disabilities have wrote to me and questioned questioned what were you thinking you know why didn't you respond there but five minutes later in that same episode jordan still john mm-hmm. who is yeah. he is a warrior for <laughs> for disability um he responds everything and and a podcast isn't really about tying things up either it's not about having answers for every comment or or you know, creating the the I, I don't know, like a, a fully fully formed movie. I would hope that some people finish the podcast and go, "I love that bit. That was a bit shit. Might need <laughs> to put a bit of time into it. Uh, why do I think that is a bit shit? And what can we do to rectify that? Do we need to alter approaches? Do we need to educate people that were in it? Do we need do we need people who are in there to listen more or engage more? You know, like I, I hope that the podcast is is not something that we pat ourselves on the back with and and say, gee, how great was the community to get the NDIS up eight years ago? I hope it's a bit of everything. I hope it's a that was an incredible thing that happened in those years uh, in the lead up to the NDIS. Well, one of the it's things that come a long way over six years, but shit, it needs a lot of work, and it needs potentially work from all different elements of it. So that that was what my hope would be. It's it's an important part of history. I, I imagine that um, anybody teaching in the in the disability sector would really value that podcast as a important bit of history. And I sometimes wonder about podcasts too. And Harry's great 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 grandchildren may you know find this audio stream of their great 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 granddad kurt fernley and listen to a podcast where you've been talking and connect with you and i want to try to connect a couple of dots that i've heard you um, put out there during this podcast kurt and imagine that but the podcast you do your personal podcast which is what does it take to be an australian and then your answer to the characteristics of the Kakor community can you do the characteristics of the Kakor community about what it takes to be a great australian mm. so the podcast is it's called tiny island and it is that's the content that we uh, that we cover Kakor, the the traits that that entire community It was egalitarian at its best. It was allowing and, and allowing every person from within the community to engage with the community. And they bore the cost of that. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an idea in the wind. It wasn't just a, you know, at the risk of at the risk of um, saying a line that I detest, it, it wasn't just this idea of virtue signaling. It wasn't something that they say but are unwilling to actually live by it. They lived by it. And farmers and and fences and you know routabouts and shearers, they would put them hand into their pocket and give so that. Person with a disability was able to be who they believe they could be. Uh, that is what I see to be 
a big part about what it is to be an Australian. It's the egalitarian nature that we that we speak about. Sometimes, sometimes we don't actually, uh, I guess, talk about it or uh, in in its accurate form. It's not just words; it's action. Sensational, Kurt. We're going to finish up. I didn't really want to ask this question, but I'll ask it and we may can edit out the intro if we end up using it because I don't think it quite works. <laughs> but people obviously love you, Kurt, but does anybody say, fuck you, Kurt Fernley? <laughs> Plenty of people. Uh, Other than competitors uh, and immediate family. Let's cut them out. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I get emails from, I get emails from people that, that, you know, like they don't like and. You know, not just from external. I get emails from people within the community as well who don't like what I do or don't like how I do it. And that's, that's completely fine. I do. I, every time I do get, I get the odd email that says I should have been aborted, say. That's oh. the, I guess that's the, uh, uh, that's the old response that would come whenever it was talking about things like funding and NDIS. So that, you're funding um, a, a system that looks after the needs and increases the engagement of people with disability. When I talk about that, people will send me a message, why should I fund you? Because your parents weren't responsible enough to be aborted. Mm-hmm. That, that's how dark it gets. That's yeah. the darkest of the dark. I don't know whether that... I, I like to think that that's somebody who is trying to think up the worst possible thing to send to another human and sending it and laughing as they walk away. You know, like I, I don't hope that that is an ideology that, that people actually buy into. I do read. I don't just block those that, that abuse me. I read and I acknowledge because my family that we spoke about earlier on, if, if, I, if I am getting these things, then another kid with disability is getting something similar. And when I interact with that kid, I need him to know that I'm receiving it as well. And we do get darker emails and our non-disabled peers. Like that, you turn up in a, you turn up in a combined team of athletes and you sit around and you say, do you get hate mail? And they're like, no, I get hate mail. Another person with a disability who speaks about issues, they get hate mail. You know, like it, it is, there are certain things that, you need to see and look into and and acknowledge, move on, don't let it affect you, your day-to-day life, don't let it affect the person that you need to be or that you are or that you would like to become. Uh, but you look at it because you realise that you're not operating in a vacuum. There's a, a lot of people out there living the same experiences that you are and you need to know that, and they need to know that you were experiencing that that moment, that 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 rubbish uh, that they are too. And that's that's why I talk about family because, yeah, yeah. you know, that's you you want to be able to share the same experiences they are so that you are able to help your family, my family, get through it when they're there. It prompts me to ask one more question that I wasn't going to ask, Kurt, because that, that answer really surprised me. I didn't expect you to come out of a dark place in response to that because you are so well-loved, but... Um, Evie and I often talk about, we work in the disability sector, we talk about the disability sector, we're father and daughter, and my wife Vanessa is a co-director, so our world is disability, and it gets to be a bit of a bubble. And I I saw you being interviewed, I think it was by Ellen Fanning, Um, it was one of the progressive, lefty people you like, um, journalists on the ABC, 
and she was blown away by the social model of disability, like this is a really inclusive, wonderful big deal. Also that it seemed to be fairly new to her, and this is like 25, 30 years that model's been around. We do live in a bit of a bubble sometimes, but it just doesn't sound like you get to, do you? Oh, the, the, the social model, it does challenge people and I don't, look, I do my absolute best not to live in a bubble. I do my absolute best. Somebody disagrees me on social media, I don't, I don't block them, I follow them. Uh, I give them the opportunity so that I can see another part of their world so that I can um, potentially, hopefully validate that person and see that person and find a bit of hope there. <laughs> so I do my absolute best not to live in a bubble. Um, although although there are some parts that you just can't escape that we you know when you when you are living in this world around disability, you do you know you do learn uh, or you do hold those things like the social model around disability you, you hold it so close that you forget that you forget that even some of the best educated minds in Australia have never heard of it. So, um, you know, I, I try not to live in a bubble. I try and make sure that we we bring people with us because we can't just have the most educated, progressive, you know, group of a hundred people with disabilities within Australia. That you know, that just can't. We need community to come along as well. We need to make sure that the, the stories that we're telling and that. The, the realities of the, uh, the lives of people with disabilities filtering through to every person with a disability or as many as we can. Um, but yeah, there is there are some parts of it where you uh, you just can't help but end up to forget that these things that are so obvious to you, you know what? If if, if it hasn't hit the world of if it hasn't hit the past the uh, the community that you're in, then yeah, it. it it's not common knowledge no, how much, no matter how much you wish it was. I just want to finish and say thank you, Kurt Fernley. I don't have a lot of um, people I, I hold, as, hold up there as um, a modern-day, I don't want to use the word hero, but I will. <laughs> You're pretty freaking impressive, and we really thank you for giving us the time today. I want to put in a plug for Hire Up for having the smarts to um, put in the, the the work and the sponsorship to get a Nation Change podcast up. So people should Google a Nation Change, Kurt Fernley. They'll find the Hire Up podcast and also direct them and myself towards a tiny island. <laughs> well, absolutely. And uh, the podcast community is incredibly lovely. Like we were saying, they engage. Uh, they engage in a way that I don't think you, you can in other mediums, these long-form conversations that... I do feel really grateful that IROC gave me that opportunity to create, to, to, to help in creating that, that the Nation Change podcast. It, it's a, it's something completely different to what I've ever done before. And I, I haven't seen that done in the disability sector, this high quality, highly produced storytelling. And uh, hopefully, hopefully your listeners are able to jump online and check it out. And uh, uh, of course, rate it up high. Wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's a professional, people. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kurt. It was lovely to meet you. So great to have this chat. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, a candid conversation with Dad's hero, Kurt Fernley. Did you think I came across as a bit too much of a fanboy? I mean, I, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, mate? Was it over the top? No, not at all.
it's nice to hear you being so positive, Roland. <laughs> <laughs> You can subscribe. Compliment. <laughs> you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast and give us five star reviews anywhere. We don't care. We do care, but only if they're five stars. <laughs> <laughs>